Welcome to MediaPost's Brand Insider. I'm your host, Steve Smith, Editorial Director of Events here at MediaPost. Each week, we interview marketing leaders from companies old and new about how they build and evolve their brands on an unpredictable media and culture terrain. In addition to this full audio interview in podcast form, we also publish a companion newsletter with highlights from the Q&A. MediaPost has been covering marketing and media news for over 20 years. You can find the Brand Insider Weekly as well as our daily coverage at MediaPost.com. Now, let's get into it. Let's welcome to the Brand Insider, Alex Reed, co-founder and CMO of Truman's, a direct-to-consumer cleaning products brand. Truman's product line is based on non-toxic solutions that are delivered in concentrated forms for uh, reusable containers. Prior to founding Truman's, Alex spent a decade leading marketing for big-ass fans. Uh, Welcome, Alex. Where is Truman's base? Where are you? Good morning, Steve. Thanks for having me. We are based in Louisville, Kentucky. That's where big ass fans with and since you know I open with a, a provocative brand name like big ass fans, I guess we should do a little background for those who are not familiar with that company that you spent many years at. What is big ass fans? So so big ass fans, as the name might suggest, is a manufacturer of very large ceiling fans, uh, in addition to consumer fans, lights, and, and a variety of uh, indoor environmental solutions. So you went from a company branded Big S Fans to a company that you've branded with uh, a name that that raises sort of an initial question, Truman's. Why Truman's for this brand? So yeah, Truman's, uh, that was a really fun and interesting exercise for for me and my co-founder because it it was really based on what we saw was a lack of um, humanity, uh, personality, uh, authenticity in the cleaning space. We we really saw... um, you know, sort of a bifurcation of brands into two different camps. One was the traditional, very chemical sounding brand names. uh, And the other was kind of the lofty, aspirational, um, design aesthetic driven brands. And we didn't feel like there were any cleaning brands out there that were plain spoken, um, really speaking directly to audience needs, uh, kind of cutting through BS and being transparent. And so what started our search was really this, this drive to have a human name, a person name. Um, we love Truman's because I think there's an undertone of, of transparency and honesty built into it. And it's also, uh, you know, a little bit contrarian in that it's a more masculine name. And it's, you know, no no secret, a lot of uh, cleaning brands have have leaned feminine in their brand voice, their their image, um, and so we loved everything about it, but it was this this iterative process to get to there based on what we really wanted the name to represent for us. Now, now that said, while the name is not as in your face as something like Big Ass Fans, uh, we do have a lot of personality. Our product names are a lot of fun, like the glass is always cleaner. Um, our toilet bowl cleaner is reporting for duty. Um, so there's a lot of personality built into the brand that I think suggests we, we took a, a page out of the Big Ass Fans book, but Unfortunately, uh, uh, clean ass uh, spray bottles just didn't have the same yeah. to it. <laughs> Are, do you see yourselves competing with household names of cleaning, like the big CPGs, Clorox, Windex, Lysol? Or, or do you see yourselves competing against other D2Cs or the newer generation of natural and non-toxic cleaners at retail? Yeah, it's definitely more of the former. Um, I see us competing against the larger CPGs, and I see the work that other direct-to-consumer um, cleaning products uh, are doing as uh, really as, as uh, you know, sort of 
added value to our mission. Um, and, and the reason for that is these brands are also introducing concentrates in, in various forms, whether they're um, powders or compressed tablets um, or different liquid dispensing or pods. Um, what my co-founder and I noticed when we decided to go into cleaning was that um, despite uh, you know a bevy of concentrate technologies uh, available to the marketplace, um, there really wasn't widespread consumer adoption. You look at the retail shelf and it's littered with single-use bottles. Um, sure, you have the large jugs of concentrate, but you know, for most consumers, they're opting for convenience. And so, you know, we, we look at this giant shift that I think is being promoted uh, by sort of the D to C um, contingent of cleaning as, as really shifting the marketplace away from the traditional brands. Now that said, to give credit to the traditional brands, there has been some change in innovation over the last year coming from that group, which I think is, is really a byproduct of one consumer demands for, for more sustainable uh, more sustainable products and two, the pressure being put on by these newer contemporary brands. Um, but there's still a long way to go. The, the de facto cleaning solution by and large for consumers comes in a, a single use plastic bottle. Hmm. So you're, so you're at, the DTCs as a category are sort of all in, in unison, educating the market on the idea of sustainability, reusability. So you're also benefiting from educating one another. Um, that kind of leads to the next question then, how do you meet the challenge of differentiation? Um, obviously, it's more obvious differentiating yourselves from the uh, from the big legacy brands. But then, how do you start differentiating yourself from the others who are also in the space, educating everybody about the sustainability of the of this approach? Yeah, I mean, as a, it's a great question, and as a marketer by by background, I'd I'd be remiss if I didn't admit that you know brand is certainly part of it. If you're uh, talented at telling your brand story, at reaching consumers, at providing value in your communications, um, that's, a, that's a major leg up. Uh, that said, there can be commoditization. Um, and I think the, the, the question of differentiation really boils down to technology. Um, you know, we have focused an awful lot as a company on um, developing new technology that that's patentable, um, that not only adds value for consumers, but is differentiated and, and can be protected in the marketplace. Um, you know, when you think about pods, um, Tide didn't invent them, but they certainly drove that, that marketplace uh, a dozen years ago or so. Um, what we did with our pod-based cleaners is we looked at innovation from a packaging perspective, so, so how they're packaged and delivered. Um, when you look at uh, spray cleaners, um, we've really focused on convenience and, and safety, you know, having concentrates that are not easily ingested or, um, you know, spilled or, or whatnot, um, and, and offer still a, get a good delivery uh, experience and, and the value proposition of sustainability. Um, you know, when you look at that space, compressed tablets have been around for about a decade now. So they're there, you know, have been solutions um, in the marketplace, and for a number of factors, they've either been slow to be adopted, um, or they're they're just not as efficacious. Meaning the the end product, the end cleaning product, doesn't end up being what the consumer wants. And so, you know, for us, we really think about using technology as a differentiator, 
And that's not necessarily to say technology from a formulation perspective, because when I look at our DNA, you know, what, what, you know, we are delivering commercial grade um, cleaning products, but that's not part of our core DNA. My co-founder and I are not biochemists. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, we're, we're heads and shoulders above Windex per se. I think we, we compare comparably. Um, but where we've chose to differentiate is, is really in, in the packaging and delivery method of the products. Uh, tell me about how, about the messaging for that. Cause some of this, so, so uh, actually what you just said that you're, you're focusing on, on packaging and delivery, which I guess that's an easier story to tell in a, uh, in a quickly scrolling Facebook, uh, feed, than, uh, than necessarily trying to tell the whole sustainability story. So tell me a little bit about the messaging that you found most effective um, and that is most efficient, especially within the, the customer acquisition channels that most DOCs need to use. Yeah, uh, that, that, you know, it's a, a kind of a, a multifactorial answer because I think for different consumers, there are different uh, value points. Um, certainly for some, the sustainability equation is key. Um, they're looking to cut down on their own a footprint of single-use plastic in the home. And there's a pretty clear value proposition across our product line for that. Uh, and the packaging, you know, plays into a big part of it. Um, for others, they're looking for non-toxic alternatives to the traditional cleaning brands, but they, you know, of course they want ones that work really well. So they're, they're out searching for a non-toxic brand that effectively cleans. And for others, you know, it's convenience. They they like having um, their laundry detergent delivered the first of the month, every month, so they never have to think about it again. And so I think for us, it's really a constant experimentation of who are these customer cohorts and, and what matters most to them so that we can deliver messaging that resonates. Um, you know, we, we've really chosen to not lead with sustainability as our key message. Um, Again, I think there's nothing wrong with, with choosing to lead with that. And there's certainly a large um, percentage of the population that, that cares deeply about sustainability. Um, but we've really focused on convenience um, as, as a key tenant of everything we do. And that's, again, convenience with having fewer options. Um, so one non-toxic uh, kitchen cleaner that can work on granite, marble, stainless steel, uh, wood cabinets, uh, versus having to go out and buy, you know, a wipe for your stainless steel and a spray for your, your countertops and, and whatnot. Um, so convenience in product selection, convenience in, in free shipping and delivery on, on your schedule, um, convenience in having a direct line to customer service via text, social media, email, live chat, if you've got questions about ingredients about what surfaces they can be used in. And so, you know, we, we use different lanes of messaging depending on where we're showing up and, and who the audience is. But our North Star from the beginning has been, let's just make this ridiculously easy for customers. And, you know, I think that's true of a lot of direct consumer brands um, that are bridging that gap that existed between the consumer and the actual uh, producer of the product. There was always somebody in between. And so if you're going to have a direct-to-consumer business, to me, it's not just about shipping product to home because you can do that via Amazon. It's about actually being able to connect with your, your customers and provide, uh, provide value in different ways. 
Uh, customer acquisition has always been the big challenge for newer brands, uh, especially the, the category has itself been responsible for driving up CPMs uh, in the usual direct channels because a lot of VC money is, is fueling this. So what's your, let's break this down, this cu customer acquisition problem. Uh, what are the most important channels for Truman's right now when it comes to acquisition? Yeah, I think, you know, despite a lot of attention being paid to emerging channels, whether you know it's it's TikTok or Snapchat um, influencers. I, I think it's true for Trumans and true for a lot of brands that you know Facebook and Instagram are still the largest advertising marketplaces, um, with with Google not far behind um, across its various advertising properties. So I, I think those, at least for you know the foreseeable future, next couple of years, it's hard to, to predict if the tide will turn and it will continue to be uh, most critical uh, for, for starting brands to reach consumers um, efficiently and efficiently in a number of ways, you know, inventory being less expensive than maybe traditional media, but also a, a heightened ability to target and, and not waste spend. How do you manage costs? Are you yeah, finding it a, a challenge to manage costs now? It is a total challenge to manage cost, and you're 100% right that um, the old playbook is dying quickly of just pouring VC money into it at, at all costs without really a second thought for um, when is this ever going to make sense from a profitability perspective. And so, you know, when I think about Truman's, um, we certainly have done a lot of experimentation with different media channels, be it, you know, influencers. Um, even, you know, radio uh, and, and things like that. But, you know, we've really decided to double down on diversifying go-to-market strategies. Um, and while I can't speak to all the specific examples, um, when you have technology uh, that is proprietary, it really opens you up to do a number of things. It, it opens you up for for licensing, it opens you up for for private labeling. It opens you up for, you know, potentially doing international deals. Of course, retail, you know, is always on the table and, and something I think a lot of brands, you know, pay attention to physical bricks and mortar retail. But I think the the headline for us is, don't be completely reliant on digital media spend for growing your business. Now that's on the acquisition side, and, and we haven't talked about. The retention side, which I think is mm -hmm. going to be the headline for, you know, the next several years is, is people paying more attention to how do we get to a point where we don't need to acquire as many customers to grow to where we get this compounding revenue um, from our existing base. And then we thoughtfully develop new products um, to be able to offer them because, I, you know, I think that's been an idea, of course, LTV of customers. But I think the, the strategies aren't necessarily as sincere um, as they could be. And, and I, you know, to, to put a finer point on it, I think brands sometimes just spin out a product. And well, I think the classic example is we're not a mattress company, we're a sleep company. You know, that's, that's I, I don't believe that. I, I, I don't believe the company was founded on we're going to you know, we're going to solve sleep. I think it was founded on, we're going to disrupt the mattress category. But then when that wasn't a profitable <laughs> endeavor, it was, well, we're, we're a sleep company. So we're also going to throw in some pillows and all these other bundles and sleep masks. And because we have to get our 
our our LTV uh, to CAC ratio in a better place. Um, and we're going to buy an insurance company now because we're really about health in the end. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Let's just keep expanding. Let's keep expanding our our remit until we finally hit something profitable. Yeah, I think there's going to be. You know, a lot of companies are very, very talented at acquiring customers at a low cost, and I think that's important. But as you you obviously understand in the direct to consumer space, um, you're trading that what you would have paid out of margin to sit on the shelf to go acquire the customer, and it's an expensive proposition. And if you don't have either a very high um, initial order value or a, a very strong repeat. Uh, customer rate, it, it it really is not going to make economic sense in the long term. And so I think whether customers double down on retention or whether they do things like, you know, I, I suggested, which is diversifying their revenue streams, not not just pounding the Facebook pavement um, to acquire customers. I think there's going to be a shift in the coming years. And I, I you know, certainly VCs are, are very dialed into this, um, this situation. I want to back up because I was really intrigued by that that point that you made about um, that when you have proprietary technology, it opens up a whole host of other uh, possible revenue channels. I know that you don't want to reveal the whole best business plan here, but could you give us sort of just an example of how that works? The idea that once that when you have that proprietary technology, you're able to leverage it in ways that can that can drive growth outside of just sheer customer acquisition. Sure. No, I, I'll um, I'll actually provide an example of a uh, a food manufacturer um, that I've done some advising for. They so they are producing um, vegan meat products, um, non-perishable vegan meat. So so think things like jerky and, and toppings for tacos and things like that. Um, because they are manufacturing this product, because they are proprietary recipes. You know that's that's more difficult for challenger brands to just flip on a switch, put a, a brand label on it, and and go to market. They are um, focused on on two key areas. One is is retail, expanding their retail footprint, and you know they're in a fortunate position where they're not even able to fulfill orders as fast as they're coming. And the other side is they're doing um, private label. So I think it was Trader Joe's that is carrying their products, but of course under you know Trader Joe's brand, um, all this is happening. In the meantime, their retail footprint is driving customers to their website. So they've they've hastily you know started selling direct to consumer, even though that's not really their core business. Um, and it's driving tremendous volume. And it's this, this sort of flywheel effect. They're able to you know, take the profits from their private label business. They're able to take the brand awareness from their retail business. And they're able to, to pour that in um, over time into building out direct to consumer. And it's a great product for shipping, for subscription, et cetera. Um, and, and, you know, I guess to distill this down to, a simple point. It's it's really an omni-channel effort that is, uh, I think, that is unlocked by them actually having something special. You know, if they didn't have something special from a product perspective, that flywheel probably wouldn't exist. So, you know, that's just an example of a company I think that's taking um, their assets and commercializing them in a really smart way. Now you're in a. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the the pandemic and how it impacted your your brand. Now you're in a category that obviously benefited from the pandemic, cleaning products, but 
I gather, and correct me if I'm wrong, disinfecting isn't actually one of the features that you tout. So tell me a little bit about how the brand navigated the pandemic from both the practical side of you know supply, demand, but also from a branding perspective of where you sat within this sort of new new, uh, de- new surge in demand. Yeah, there there were ups and downs. I mean, there were positives and negatives. And I think the just kind of going from you know the beginning, the first positive was that we were in a business that still made sense, right? People were still going to buy cleaning products. Um, they were especially going to shift to more online purchasing and cleaning products. So that was, you know, the first win was just being able to keep keep the lights on by nature of, of uh, good fortune of what business we were in. Uh, the second thing was that CPMs dropped precipitously. And I think everybody observed that in the beginning um, by 50% or more in certain cases. And so just no matter who you were, if you were spending on these core digital platforms, you were benefiting um, from greater reach at a lower cost. Um, that said, there were supply chain challenges. Um, we launched uh, our new laundry dish and toilet products right at the beginning of this. Um, and we got bumped from production. Um, so we launched because we had advertising commitments, You know, we had everything ready to go. And in the 11th hour, our manufacturing partner said, I- I'm sorry, like, I'm, I'm also having to produce these sanitation products for hospitals and first responders and all this stuff. And, you know, I've got to move you back, um, which, you know, of course we understood, but it was a challenge nonetheless. And so, you know, that was our first supply chain challenge down the road. We experienced longer lead times on things like bottles and sprayers and, and whatnot, again, just because of the overall demand that the entire industry was experiencing. So, you know, we had, um, some benefits, I think, from a from a customer facing perspective, and some challenges in, in back of the house operations that we were able to navigate. And then to your question about you know the lift, I, I think there was a little bit of an exaggeration um, in what benefit it was going to provide to you know certain to the cleaning category as a whole. It certainly there was lift, but but you're right when you look at the shelves, it's it's the Lysol, Clorox, 409, the disinfectants are are being hoarded and, and stocked up on. Um, and we looked at that as an opportunity. This, this was something we were already doing um, because it's, it's an interesting sort of, um, you know, it's, it's like a generational shift almost where there, there are a lot of people that think if you're not disinfecting, you're not cleaning, um, you're not doing anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and what we've used it as is an opportunity to educate, you know, via uh, our own properties like social, email, and blog, and and really be out there in, in the media as much as possible talking about uh, the benefit of cleaning versus disinfecting. You know, if nobody's sick in the home or, you know, if there wasn't raw chicken on the countertop, um, you know, cleaning, which is the act of removing germs, dirt, impurities, whatever from a surface is the better way to go. Um, you're not putting harsh substances in your home. They can be lung, eye irritants, skin irritants. Um, they can kill the good bacteria that uh, is, is healthy for us. So, you know, there's a lot of, of positive to, to share with the community about why you should clean versus disinfect. Again, which isn't to say you should never disinfect, but we used it as a springboard to really highlight that 
Now, of course, you have some customers that <laughs> still say, for peace of mind, I want to scorch the earth and I'm going to get a nuke. I got to nuke this stuff. <laughs> um, but I right. think, you know, it's it's something that people are starting to understand, at least from our, you know, our limited vantage point now that there is a difference. And, you know, there is that 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 is why we're able to offer non-toxic solutions, because we're, we're not using toxic chemicals that kill things. Uh, every marketer that I talk to now has the challenge of, of planning for 2021 and, uh, and, and uncertainty. And as you mentioned, you got caught short uh, earlier in the pandemic when you had a whole series of advertising commitments that you obviously had, had planned against a campaign and, and product launches. So as you're looking into 2021, how are you dealing with uncertainty? Is it less uncertain now that the vaccine is rolling out? Are you, uh, have you sort of built in or, or changed the ways in which you make your commitments and are thinking about what the plan looks like for the coming year? Yeah, I, for, for us, again, I think we were fortunate and others were, were less so that our industry was not impact in an existential way. You know, if you think about the events industry, um, lodging, travel, um, all of these industries were, were not only completely uprooted, there's still not a clear point at which there's consensus that they're coming back. Movie theaters, for example, when are people gonna feel comfortable you know, gathering in crowds? Um, what are the, the restrictions and, and, and what is the guidance from the CDC gonna be um, once vaccines hit 30% uh, distribution, 50%, 75%, it's, it's really unclear. Um, so, you know, all that said, we don't feel that same level of uncertainty or volatility towards our business. Now, I think there's, it's a good lesson and you should never let a good crisis go to waste, um, that you should always have, you know, a little bit of dry powder. Um, I guess that's kind of a cleaning pun, but, um, you should always be ready for, um, disruption, whether it's from within your industry or it's completely, you know, external as the pandemic was. Um, but, you know, I, I, again, I think we're just in, in a very fortunate position that it, it the, the circumstances of the pandemic were not, um, you know, not a, a, a dire threat to, to the cleaning industry as it, as it has been to other categories. Uh, what's the biggest surprise? Uh, or, or lesson that you learned from this pandemic? Oh, gosh. Um, for, for Truman's or just in general? No, for Truman's uh, in particular and from marketing, just from a marketing perspective. Yeah. Um, I think it's that customers are really understanding. You know, we're a customer service driven business, um, as I think most DTC companies are. Um, we encourage our customers to engage with us. We don't look at customer service as a cost center um, that we want to minimize. And, you know, when we've had disruptions um, and longer lead times and slower shipping because of the postal service issues, um, you know, our customers are really understanding when you communicate with them and when you're transparent. And they're, you know, again, it, it makes sense, but I just... I have this um, discomfort with delivering bad news to customers. And I think everybody would. Um, and you think, oh, this is, this is terrible. They're going to have to wait three weeks now for something they ordered. Um, the circumstances of the pandemic, I think, 
and maybe not, <laughs> maybe not in the political realm, but at least in the business realm, has created more empathy. Um, I think on both both sides, people understand now that you know there are challenges that we're all dealing with, and you know it was just really really great to see um, when we've had to. Uh, deal with some of these wrinkles, um, how understanding our customers have been, how compassionate they've been. And um, again, I think that's one of the, the beautiful things about a direct consumer business is you, you get to understand and see those interactions. Um, you know, so that, that to me was, I think the biggest surprise was just, um, it, it wasn't a complete, I, you know, I don't know if I can say, uh, well, we said ass, so it wasn't a complete shit show whenever we had something go wrong. Let me, uh, actually, I meant to ask this earlier, but I, but since you, you raised that um, relationship with co consumers, and, and since part of the whole business plan for Truman's was really based on this idea that there was space in the market for a more uh, personal relationship with a cleaning brand. Now, I talk me down from my cynicism. I've been one of those media critics who has been telling brands for years, you know, get over yourselves. They don't love you. They're not going to love you. Nobody really cares. <laughs> What the, that, 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 that you're cleaning a toilet for. Um, talk me down from that idea, because I still uh, believe and, and tell most, uh, most brands um, that it's only in the boardrooms that, they really, that people really think that people love your brand. Um, yeah, so. and, and I think there's a lot of evidence, there's a lot of research that suggests that, you know, I think uh, Havas has been doing media research for years that keeps telling us again and again every year, most people really could care less if, uh, if their favorite brands go away. Um, so from someone who's sort of built a company on this idea that there actually was space for people to have a different relationship with their cleaning brands, talk me down from my cynicism. No, I think you're right. I think your cynicism is warranted. 99% of our customers, and my co-founder will probably kill me for saying it, 99% of our customers would probably be fine making a switch if, if all things were equal. Um, and, and you were kind of discounting brand, but um, I, my point, I guess, is that 1% matters. Um, you don't need this love, this passion, this enthusiasm from all of your customers. I think you've, you've got to deliver these great experiences. And, and again, for 99% of our customers, it's going to be transactional, right? You're going to, you're going to pay for cleaning product is going to arrive on time. You're going to use it. It's going to work. You're going to keep going as long as the, the value is there for you. Um, but I think when we have these, these one-offs um, where we did something special for the customer or we, we screwed something up and we made it right in a really special way, you build that sort of brand advocacy that I think gets amplified and that matters. And that's where the appearance of brand love comes out in social media and reviews and things like that. And again, it's not the majority of customers because you can't, especially as you scale, you can't have those special one-to-one -one interactions with every single customer, um, certainly not in a meaningful way. And so I think your cynicism is warranted. And I think when people speak in generality about, oh, their brand affinity or their NPS score, um, what they're, you know, what, what they're probably referencing is that they've got uh, a small group of super fans um, within their customer base that, that really sings their praises in a vocal way, which is, which is what you want, which is all you can really hope for. Because you're right, there's indifference. I mean, it's, it's cleaning products. Um, most people don't have an emotional relationship with their cleaning products. Um, but, you know, that said, big ass fans 
I, I think really did have a special relationship with more than that 1% of their customers. There was a real fanhood there. And it was reminiscent, now that I can kind of look back on it and reflect of Harley. You know, there's there's a community, there's a pride. Mm -hmm. If you have a Harley, you probably have a Harley jacket. You know, you're probably in a Harley club. Um, Big Ass Fans was for B2B brands. I don't know that there was a, a better um, uh, better developer of, of community and fanhood than, than Big Ass Fans. People, and, and the word ass helps, but people wanted those shirts. They wanted the coffee mugs. They wanted to brag about the Big Ass Fan. They, they put in their warehouse or they put in their living room. There was this, this pride that, uh, again, I think I'll probably talk about it for the rest of my life, but what, what an aspirational outcome if, if you're a marketer, if you're a, you know, a business trying to build a special brand that, that people are dying to get their hands on, on your gear and want to tell their friends that they just put your product in their home. Um, that's about as good as it gets. <laughs> Alex Reed, co-founder and CMO of Truman's. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me on. It was great talking to you. And thanks for tuning in to Media Post Brand Insider Podcast. You can keep up to date with breaking marketing and media news at mediapost.com. That's also where you can subscribe to the Brand Insider newsletter, where highlighted versions of these interviews can go to your email inbox each week. If you have any comments or suggestions for the Brand Insider series, please send them to me. Steve at mediapost.com.